Well, we're now going to turn our attention to God's Word. Um, as we turn to God's Word this morning, uh, I know for the last couple weeks we've been in a kind of mini-series within Isaiah. Well, today I'm going to introduce another mini-series because today is Palm Sunday and next week is Easter. Uh, so for this week and the next four weeks, we're actually going to look at the topic of the Lord's Supper. Um, I want to just explain for a moment uh, why we're going to be looking at the topic of the Lord's Supper uh, for this week and the next four weeks. And then again, we'll uh, read these texts and we will uh, hear the message. But as you are probably familiar with, uh, ever since uh, COVID happened with all the various restrictions that came with that, we had to change our service quite dramatically uh, in order to cut down on the volunteers that we uh, once had in order to make sure that we weren't uh, handing things to one another as often as we used to in order to make sure that uh, we weren't singing and spreading germs into the air as much as we once did. And so there were a lot of changes that we had to make during that time. And so ever since then, uh, especially now that the restrictions have waned, the elders have especially been asking, uh, how can we change our service if, you know, now that we're basically free to do whatever we want to do, how would we really like to change our service to, uh, to, to do that, to really honor the Lord as we think we best could? Uh, and by and large, the decision that we've made is we want our service to stay uh, mostly the same as uh, what we have right now. And I'm all in favor of that. I love right now the mix that we have of prayers to God, of singing to Him, of the message uh, the one thing that we thought our service really lacked that we think would be beneficial to us as a church is a richer, deeper, more frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we would like to add that into our service on a weekly basis moving forward, and really not just adding it in on a weekly basis. We also want to really revamp how we are celebrating it. So especially during uh, the season of coronavirus, you know, we always had these little uh, cups that had, you know, the little juice on one side and the wafer on the other. Well, we want to be done with those. We want the Lord's Supper to truly be the, the feast, the celebration that we think it's supposed to be. That's what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. And so we're also going to be uh, trying out new ways of celebrating the Lord's Supper so that it really does honor the Lord in the way that I think the Lord himself intended in it. Um, so that's why I'm going to be preaching on the Lord's Supper this week and for the coming few weeks. Again, I know it's also Easter, but I really believe that this theme, this idea of the Lord's Supper is obviously very in keeping with Easter. The very thing that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate at Easter. So I hope that uh, this series of messages will also encourage your hearts uh, during this week, Holy Week, and in the, the weeks to come after Easter. Uh, and let me also just uh, say a couple other remarks because I don't want you to be thinking too much about practicalities that you can't listen to the message. Uh, first of all, we're not going to do the Lord's Supper this morning. Um, I'm going to preach on it this morning, but I know it's a new idea for us, so we're going to let the idea sink in for a week, and then, Lord willing, next week we can start uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper in this new way. Uh, and second, we're also not planning to uh, greatly lengthen our service our hope is that I can uh, shorten my messages by about 10 minutes so we can give about 10 minutes to the Lord's Supper so that the service will stay roughly the same. So I don't want you to worry too much about uh, the mechanics and all that. We're, we're thinking through those things. And, uh, and so, Lord willing, you'll be able to uh, receive the, the teaching in the spirit in which it's given this morning. Okay, so at this time, uh, we're going to read four texts. Uh, Nate will come up for us and read for us from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 to 26. This is going to tell us a little bit about what it was like to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the early days of the church. Uh, John will come up and read for us from John chapter 6, 
verses 53 to 56. This is Jesus talking about some of the deeper meaning of the Lord's Supper. Christy will come and read for us from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. And then finally, Anna will come and read for us from Acts 2, 41 to 47, which speaks again to how the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper. In the message this morning, I'm really going to hone in on Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, so you can kind of keep your fingers in your Bibles there, and uh, we'll spend most of our time this morning uh, looking at those texts. With that, let me go ahead and uh, pray for us um, uh, for for the blessing over the reading and preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word does lead us into all truth. And God, I pray that your word would have that effect upon our hearts right now. I pray, Lord, that any ways that any of us um, have thought wrongly in the past about the Lord's Supper or are thinking wrongly right now, I pray that by your word, Lord, you would correct us. I pray especially, Lord, that by your word, you would give us um, new joy and hope in the gospel, Lord, that we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so, God, make your gospel come alive to us, I pray, through the reading and preaching of your word right now, Lord, for the joy of us as your people and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. John six fifty three through 56 So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Acts 2, 41-47 So those who received his word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as we're looking at that Acts chapter 2 text, I want you to go with me this morning on a journey of imagination. I want you to imagine being in this place back in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost itself, a Saturday that was about 50 days after Jesus 
had risen from the dead, hearing these apostles preaching in tongues and seeing about 3,000 people saved in that one day. What would you feel in that moment? What would it be like to have been there in that place? Now, in my mind, it would have staggered the imagination to experience all those things. But here's the number one thing that I think would have stood out to you if you had been in that crowd at Pentecost, if you had been one of those 3,000 who were saved, your jaw would have dropped and you would have said, oh my goodness, I really can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. This man who I saw come into the city of Jerusalem less than two months ago with the whole city celebrating him who then was crucified upon the cross. And maybe you even remember the earth shaking that day when he died. Maybe you even remember the dead coming out of the tombs and walking around the city when he died. Maybe you heard the rumors about the curtain being torn in two when he died and you did not know what was going on. And then all of a sudden, 50 days later, You see this tongue of fire descend upon those who were the disciples of Jesus Christ and they proclaim this message of salvation that tells you that Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh and if you believe in him, if you're baptized, if you repent of your sins, then you can be saved. Then you can have the victory over death that Jesus himself accomplished. And probably up to that time, you'd maybe thought, well, maybe somebody stole the body of Jesus, or some people say that he actually rose from the dead. I don't really know what happened. But now you see with your own eyes the miracle being done before you, and you recognize that you cannot deny the truth any longer, that Jesus really has gotten up from the dead, that he really is the Son of God, And that in his name, you now truly can be saved from death itself and forgiven of all of your sins. Now, if you had heard that message, if this was a a brand new idea to your ears, you would surely have not have imagined in your wildest dreams that something like this could actually occur. That God could actually come in the flesh. That he would actually die for sinners. That he would actually rise from the dead in such a way that if you believe in him, you can be joined to him in every way for each of those things that he has done. This is an incredible plan of salvation that no human being could ever have dreamed up. And yet here you are hearing firsthand from the disciples of Jesus Christ that this is exactly what God has done. How could you not be filled with joy and wonder at this news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished and at this offer that is now given to you that by repentance and faith alone you can be saved? You would be so filled with joy, I think, that you would just want to find some way to celebrate. You would want to find someone to celebrate with. I almost think of those revelers in Times Square on New Year's that when that clock hits midnight, it doesn't really matter who's right around them. They just want to find someone to hug or someone to get a, give a high five to because they're just excited that they're in Times Square on the new year. I think you would have felt that times a thousand if you were in the crowd at the temple on Pentecost, this first news, this first wave that death has been defeated and you can be included in this new humanity, 
must have sent such a thrill through the crowd, such a shock through everyone that heard it, that there would just be this enormous impulse to celebrate, to rejoice about this incredible thing that God had accomplished. And indeed, this is exactly what we see happening. So if you look at the book of Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, what result do we see among those who heard this message proclaimed at Pentecost? It said, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see this huge outburst of joy, of praise, of celebration. You don't see a huge obligation laid upon these people to attend the temple every day, a huge obligation laid upon them to sell everything they have, a huge obligation to do any of these things. No, they are devoted to these things. They are excited about these things precisely because they are still in awe of this glorious news that has come to them about the work of Jesus Christ. Because this is such amazing news, they gladly and joyfully gather together. They gladly and joyfully sell all they have, go to the temple. And again, especially in verse 42, you see, devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And so I want you to notice two things in particular about this passage. First, I want you to notice the emotions that are highlighted in this passage. So first, in verse 43, it says an awe, or another word you could translate there is fear. So awe or fear came upon every soul. In other words, they, they trembled and they were stunned because they realized just how near the God of the universe was to them. It was scary to them how God was so present in their midst, how they realized that they had just crucified the Son of God. Now the Spirit of God was descending upon them and filling them. Signs and wonders were being done all around them. They were in fear. They were in awe at the presence of God all around them. This is the first emotion that we see. When you go down to verse 46, you see the emotions of gladness and generosity. Again, it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were rejoicing. They were glad because of the mercy that God had shown through Jesus Christ. And they were generous because they wanted to extend the same mercy to others. They realized that the proper response, the only response to this inbreaking of the good news of Jesus Christ was that they should be glad and they should be generous. And so they had glad and generous hearts. And then the last emotion word you see in verse 47, I know we don't normally think of this as an emotion word, but 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Beloved, what is praise but having a heart that is overflowing with joy and celebration of God? If your heart is not doing that, you are not praising God. You may be offering lip service. You may be doing something that has the outward form of praise. But if your heart is not rejoicing in God, not happy in God, then you are not praising God. And these people had a heart to praise God. And again, 
Why did they have this heart? Because of the glorious news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. They thought, how could we not praise God given this glorious plan of salvation that God has accomplished, that he has worked out? And so they had all of these overwhelming emotions, this remarkable joy in what Jesus had done in their behalf. And what did this yield? Again, verse 42, it yielded this community that was devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, they just wanted more of the Lord. They wanted more teaching. They wanted more fellowship. They wanted more breaking of bread. They wanted more prayers. They just wanted more of God because they were so amazed at what God had done. They were so amazed at what God was doing in their midst that they said, give me more of this. Give me more fellowship and teaching and breaking of bread. They were so happy in God that these things seemed entirely natural to them. And so this morning, what I especially want to highlight in this verse is that phrase, breaking of bread. What does it mean that they were devoted to the breaking of bread? Well, let me say for starters that I I don't think this only means the Lord's Supper. I do think the Lord's Supper is included in this idea of breaking of bread, but I think it's also larger than that. I think it means that they more generally enjoyed eating together, having fellowship with one another over food. Now, I I think it probably includes this broader meaning because when you go down to verse 46, it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Well, as we'll see in just a moment, it isn't exactly right to think about the Lord's Supper merely as food. So when it says they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, I don't think that's a reference to the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. No, it's a reference to them just more generally enjoying eating together. They loved fellowship with one another, and one way that they would celebrate together is by getting together and having meals together. We also know from this text that they gave up all that they had. And so the only way that they could get food after that was in those common places where the church was coming together and the church had corporately purchased food. They didn't have their own money to go eat in their own homes anymore. And so every meal they ate was with this new church family that they had. But I think that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is particularly trying to draw our attention to how they loved to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that is because he does use the words, breaking of bread. Now, if he wanted to simply say that they enjoyed eating together, he could have simply said the verb eat instead of the verb for breaking of bread. So what's the significance of using the word words breaking bread? Well, Luke was also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And how do we see the Lord's Supper described in the Gospel of Luke? Well, if you turn to Luke 2, 22, verse 19, it tells us how Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper. And there it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in other words, when Luke is describing... The initial celebration of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus then handed down to his disciples, he uses the words, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. 
And so now, here in Acts 2, 42, when we see that they are devoted to the breaking of bread, I think it is right of us and good for us to think that these people were also devoted to the Lord's Supper, that they loved to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this makes all the sense in the world, does it not? Again, Jesus had just gotten up from the dead. This gospel message has now just been proclaimed. You're with 3,000 people who have just heard this same message of redemption and you want to celebrate and you're wondering, how is it that I celebrate this? Well, one of the few things that the apostles knew at that time is, well, Jesus told us to remember him by the Lord's Supper. And so what do you do? You take the Lord's Supper together. This is how you celebrate Jesus. This is how you celebrate that you are now one with him by faith. And so I do believe that they had a special devotion. Probably one of the most central things of their gathering week by week was taking the Lord's Supper because it was precisely in taking the Lord's Supper that they remembered how they were unified to Jesus. And by being unified to Jesus, they were also unified with one another. And so the Lord's Supper was just kind of this perfect example to them of all that brought them together of all that was significant about their community, about their fellowship. And I think we get a very clear glimpse of this when we go to look at the Corinthian church. And so if you now want to flip over to 1 Corinthians 11, I want us to look a little bit at how the church in Corinth celebrated the Lord's Supper. Now, I I realize this might be an interesting passage to go to, to look at how we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. Most typically, people go to this passage to look at how we shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper. And indeed, we will see a couple ways of how we shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper. But I think more deeply embedded in this passage are instructions for how we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I first want to read this passage for us. I think if I, I read the whole thing, you'll start to get a picture in your head of what was going on in Corinth. And that overall picture is really what I want you to take away from this text this morning. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. The Apostle Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you direction when you come. So the first thing I want you to notice about this text is the impulse to celebration that the Corinthian church had. You see, when they were coming together, they were so driven to celebrate all that Jesus had done that they came together and some of them, as soon as they got there, they just started eating and they just ate as much bread as they could and they just drank as much wine as they could to the point where some of them even got drunk and some of them who got there late didn't even have any food left for them. This was a terrible thing. It was a terrible way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but Notice what Paul was correcting in them. He was correcting this deeper impulse that they had to come together and basically to party. They wanted to celebrate what God has done. And notice how Paul corrects them. Paul does not correct them by saying that they were too eager to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He does not correct them by saying that they were too happy or they were enjoying it too much or they were too raucous or they were drinking alcohol or any of those things. No, Paul corrects them in two particular ways, both centering, I think, on one primary concern. The first way he corrects them is in verse 33 where he says, wait for one another. So in other words, Paul didn't have a problem with them eating a lot or even with them drinking a fair amount as long as they weren't getting drunk. The problem he had was when some people had a lot to eat and other people did not have as much to eat. The problem was not the amount. The problem was that it was unequal. And so Paul was correcting them, saying that they had to wait for one another to ensure that everyone had an equal amount because this was central to the significance of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper signified how they were one body in Christ Jesus. And how do you show your one body if some people come and eat everything and then other people come and they have nothing? That is the exact opposite of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to display. And this is why the Apostle Paul said, it is not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate, because they were not waiting on one another. And yet, they had this deeper impulse that when they came together, what they were supposed to do is to happily eat together. And that more basic impulse, the Apostle Paul does not correct. And then the second correction that he gives is how they thought of the Lord's Supper simply as food. So in verse 34, he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. In other words, you can enjoy the Lord's Supper a great deal, but you should never think of the Lord's Supper as your Sunday dinner or as the place where you're going to come to get your physical hunger satisfied, right? The, the Lord's Supper is not mainly about physical food. It's not mainly about filling our bellies. It is mainly spiritual food. It is mainly about filling our hearts, reminding us of all that God did in Jesus Christ. And so if anybody comes to take the Lord's Supper simply saying, well, I'm really hungry and I'm glad we have some food here, then they are not discerning the body. As the Apostle Paul says in this text, they are not celebrating the Lord's Supper rightly if you simply think of it as food. 
So the Apostle Paul has these two very straightforward objections to how the Corinthian church was celebrating the Lord's Supper. One, that they needed to wait for one another, and two, that they shouldn't look at it as their primary meal of the day. But it seems to me that outside of that, Paul is basically saying, I am glad that you are eager to eat together. I'm glad that you're eager to take the Lord's Supper together. Just make sure you're waiting for one another. Make sure you're not looking at this meal as your primary meal of the day, because I don't want you to come really hungry and just start to eat up all the food before others get here. Now, in the Corinthian church especially, I think this exacerbated some deeper divisions because, of course, it was those who were more wealthy, who had more leisure, who could come earlier to the service, whereas those who were more poor and had to work all day, they could only come later on. And so it was the poor who were always deprived of food, and it was the wealthy who always had food. And again, this was exactly the opposite of what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be displaying. But what this does for us, I believe, is it gives us a basic picture of what was going on in most of the early churches. Not that most of the early churches were falling into error in these ways, that they were drinking too much and getting drunk or that they were not waiting for one another, but most of the early churches really did see this idea of eating together, of sharing food together, the bread and the cup of the Lord Jesus Christ as being central to their gathering, central to why they came together, central to their celebration each week. And I think, by and large, the the church in the West has gotten so focused on avoiding the errors of the Corinthian church that we have forgotten what the original and good impulse was of the Corinthian church and of God's church in general in the Lord's Supper, namely to celebrate the work of Jesus Christ, to celebrate that he died, that he rose again, and that we are now one in him. Again, it was this glorious news that broke in upon the world that is still breaking in upon the world as we spread the gospel, and it is to be celebrated above all else. And in the early church, and my prayer is that in the church today as well, we will see the Lord's Supper as a fitting way to celebrate this glorious work of Jesus Christ. And so, in short, What I want us to imagine together this morning is being a people so overjoyed that Jesus has risen from the dead and that we are now victors in him, that we cannot wait to eat together, to remember him, to sing of him together, to hear his words of grace spoken over us as we gather together. It is for joy that we come together. It is not simply from duty or obligation. And I believe that this, above all, is what should characterize our celebration, our partaking of the Lord's Supper. And you know what? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, this kind of joy that I'm talking about, this kind of excitement that I'm talking about, just seems totally foreign to you. You you feel like, I don't even know what he means by being excited about what Jesus has done. Well, guess what? Even this morning, you can get in on this. You can experience the joy of salvation yourself if you will trust in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for you. Then you can know the joy of the fellowship that we have and you can know the joy of celebrating the meal of the Lord's Supper together. So to break out what I have just said into three distinct benefits that I see to the Lord's Supper I think that first, the Lord's Supper, celebrating it weekly, will help us to be more gospel-centered. 
It will remind us very clearly every week that Jesus died for us and that we can be joined to him by faith. This is what the Lord's Supper is given for, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. And so it is a means for us to proclaim the gospel each week, to proclaim the death of the Lord on our behalf each week. Why is it that we come together as a church, beloved? Is it because we agree on some small things? Is it because we just like each other and so we decide we're going to see each other every week? It's no small reason that we come together, beloved. There is one reason alone why I believe this body of people comes here each week. It's because we all love Jesus Christ and we want to worship him and because we here are one in Jesus Christ. And so if this is the reason for our gathering, if this is why we come together every Sunday, why not simply acknowledge that in the Lord's Supper? That this is why we're here, because we're remembering that Jesus Christ died for us and rose again from the dead for us, and we are now one in him. So the Lord's Supper will help us to be more clearly gospel-centered. The second benefit I see to a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper is that it will help us, bit by bit, to be more eager to enjoy our union with God and with one another. It will make us more eager to enjoy our union with God and with one another. Beloved, it's no accident that the Lord's Supper is just that. It is a supper. It is a meal. It is a natural human impulse in every culture around the world that when we want to celebrate, when we want to enjoy something together, we do it over a meal. Regardless of where you go in the world, whenever they celebrate a holiday, there is always a special meal associated with that holiday. And so if we come together and we enjoy a meal together every week, we are essentially saying that we are eager to enjoy our fellowship with one another. And even more than that, we are eager to enjoy our fellowship with the Lord. Because what is the bread and what is the cup except the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And by eating it, it is actually to be a picture of our union with Jesus Christ. Just the way that bread and wine go into our mouths and become a part of our body. In the same way, Jesus Christ wants to be joined with each of us. And so when we take the Lord's Supper each week, we're saying, Lord, I want that. I want to be united to you in that way. And just as I'm eating with this body of people right here, right now, I want to be joined with them as one body in Christ Jesus, just the way your word describes us. And so I believe that the Lord's Supper can be a great means to encourage us to enjoy our union with one another and our union with God. And then finally... I think that the Lord's Supper will cause our worship to have have even more of a celebration-like atmosphere, to be a worship service that is full of joy, as it ought to be because of the gospel. I'm very thankful for many things about this church. I'm very thankful for how we sing to the Lord. I'm very thankful for how we are attentive to his word. And I want even more of those good things that I already see in small form in us, the fact that we are glad in the Lord. And I believe that by taking the Lord's Supper each week can only increase our joy by saying this is part of how we remember what Christ has done. We come together and we eat. We eat bread, 
We drink wine. We remember the goodness of the Lord together, and therefore we rejoice. And so this is my prayer for how we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, if I'm 100% honest with you, I don't know exactly how to do that. And we also have some limitations just with our space here. For example, we cannot all sit down at a table together and have a big meal. We just don't have enough room in this, uh, in this space to do that. But my prayer is that we can find some small ways to remind us as we're taking the Lord's Supper that this isn't just a ritual meal that we have. This isn't just something about me personally and my relationship with God, but rather this really is something whereby we corporately are celebrating what God has done for us. And so we're going to try as a church to cultivate more of that atmosphere. Now, in closing, I actually wanted to turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. Uh, This was in my uh, personal Bible reading this week, and I thought it was just too appropriate for this message here not to share. And I think it's a great closing illustration and closing exhortation to us as a church for how we ought to worship the Lord. So again, this is Nehemiah 8, 9 to 12. It says, in Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Beloved, so often when we think of holiness, When we think of worship of God, we think of being very dour, very serious. We think of even mourning. And here we have such a clear affirmation that when we come together as a holy gathering, as a holy church, as a holy body, which is what I believe we are in Jesus Christ, what is the fitting attitude of God's people in those moments of holiness? The fitting attitude of God's people is an attitude of gladness and rejoicing. They are even forbidden from weeping when they come together. And what is the essence of this gladness that they are encouraged to have on, on the Sabbath, on the day when they come to celebrate? In verse 10, again, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. This is how we show our gladness in the Lord. And beloved, what is especially remarkable to me is that these words of Nehemiah, how he was exhorting God's people to rejoice in this way, he was causing them to rejoice because they had the law of God. Because God's word had just been read to them, and they were supposed to celebrate that they had such a perfect law. And yet, beloved, how much better a thing do we have when we have the very Spirit of God, when Jesus Christ has come and died so that the law is no longer over us, and we have the love of God poured out into our hearts, how much more reason do we have to rejoice than these Jewish people of Nehemiah's day? 
We have every reason to come together in joy and gladness. And I do not mean for this to say that we should never be serious, that we can never mourn, that we can never weep. Obviously, there is a time for every emotion that there is, but the overwhelming sense that God's people should have when they gather together is a sense of joy and gladness in the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Because this is why Jesus came, beloved, why he died, why he rose again, to liberate us from the tyranny of death, from the tyranny of sin, so that we could live forever with God, looking forward to that glorious wedding supper of the Lamb. And so I'm excited to be able to try and celebrate the Lord's Supper with you in a new way in the coming weeks. I pray that it truly will be a blessing to us as a church and that we truly can capture that spirit of the New Testament that God has done a glorious thing and we are here to rejoice and be glad in it. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for the glorious work that Christ has done on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that there would be no end to the joy that our hearts experience because of it. I pray, Lord, especially for anyone here who is just stuck in thinking small thoughts of the salvation that you have purchased. I pray for anyone for whom the salvation that is in Jesus Christ seems to be just a minor note in their lives, seems to bring them very little joy, God, I pray that they would be awakened to see the true expanse of hope that is to be found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that in that way, you would make us as a people corporately, a people who are eager to come together, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, to celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done. God, I pray that you would now receive from us whatever other prayers we as a people may have, prayers of intercession and confession. Lord, would you hear our prayers now?